0: And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax gatherers and sinners? And Jesus answered, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call righteous men, but sinners to repentance. Repentance. Jesus wasn't hanging out with sinners. He was calling sinners to himself. And when Matthew came to Christ, this was an evangelistic dinner, if you will. He invited everybody over and Jesus gladly came. He said, not for the healthy people,
1: but for the sick people. Welcome to Abide in the Word with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Today, we continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Scott brings a message titled, Forgiveness in No One Else. We invite you to follow along with us now as we get started. The wages
0: of sin is not just God saying, ah, you're forgiven. The wages of sin is death. God doesn't just forgive. To say your sins are forgiven necessitated that He would go to the cross and shed his blood for us because without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins think on that because i'm telling you the gospel we celebrate the good news that we're here to enjoy and study in the bible when you hear jesus christ offer forgiveness the scripture is very clear there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood and the blood of animals can't take away that sin i'm quoting hebrews nine twenty-two when i say Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Hebrews 9 is very clear. And Hebrews 10, uh, the animal sacrifice could never take away sin. But they pointed to the one who could be and was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And to say your sins are forgiven meant he had to go to the cross. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. When I was in the fifth grade, I... Uh, I, you know, I love baseball, loved baseball then. And I read a Babe Ruth biography in the fifth grade. And it was sort of a sanitized version, you know, fifth grader. And actually that's, uh, and I got this picture of the Babe uh, that, yeah, he kind of lived a wild life, but, you know. And anyway, that formed my thinking about the Babe. Well, recently I was given, (laughs) in fact, recently I was kidding. Somebody was telling me they read the classics and we were in a social setting, kind of like at this, a table at a banquet. And the guy across was telling me that he reads, uh, you know, Dickens, and he reads this, and he reads that. And he says, I said, he said, what are you reading? I said, The Life and Times of Babe Ruth. And he didn't laugh. But uh, I, you know, anyway, I didn't even know there was such a book. Well, about a week later, I was given this book, The Life and Times of Babe Ruth. I just finished it last night. He said, what are you talking about Babe Ruth for Well, there's a point. Um, When Babe died, and this was not the sanitized version, this told his life like it really was, you know, all the sin, all the rebellion, all the debauchery. And uh, yet, you know, he'd been raised in a Catholic uh, delinquent home and he had a respect for, and he'd go to mass and he'd throw money in the plate, that sort of thing. But his life right to the end was pretty sad am pretty sinful, but they gave him last rites, and the author said, and even that was controversial because there were many Catholics who felt babe shouldn't have been given last rites. He wasn't worthy of forgiveness, and that hit me because I've been thinking about Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, who forgives sin, but only because he died on a cross for it, And I thought, what a misconception that is Uh, on two fronts. First of all, to think that anybody is worthy of forgiveness. Forgiveness wouldn't be forgiveness if you were worthy of it, (laughs) okay? But then secondly, to think that any ritual performed by some man, some priest could wash away your sins. So it's on my mind, and I'll tell you this, there's forgiveness in no one else but Jesus Christ himself. And when you come with your sin and your guilt and you come to him, he is willing and ready to forgive you. And uh, I would say that uh, enjoy that. Enjoy that. And he said, in order that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins, take up your bed and follow me. And they glorified God. Look at it. When the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe, verse 8, and glorified God who had given such authority to men. And by the way, uh, God gave His authority to His Son, who is God, Emmanuel, but Jesus delegated that authority to us. When He left, He said, We can proclaim forgiveness in His name. It's an amazing thing. I can tell you today, you can be forgiven no matter what you've done if you'll turn to Christ Himself. That's why we love Him, and that's why uh, the Bible is all about Jesus Christ. Well, verse 9, and you're noticing if you're with us that uh, Matthew is just a scene scene after scene in Jesus' life. He compresses in this 8th and ninth chapter several little vignettes of Jesus' life, and they're just as relevant today as they were uh, when they were written, and they speak to our lives because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So having said that, uh, when they were glorifying God, we're told that Jesus passed on from there, and as He was passing on, He saw a man called Matthew. Now this is the author of the book we're reading, Matthew, okay? And uh, he's sometimes called Levi. He had two names, uh, but notice, let's just read it, As as he was passing by, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are ill. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, um, the call of Matthew. Matthew is one of the disciples, one of the twelve. And he's writing this book and he's looking back to that day when he, as a tax collector, was called by Jesus Christ to follow him. And, uh, you know, you're probably familiar, but if you're not, his conversion was real. Uh, He is called Levi in Mark's gospel, and I'm going to read Mark's gospel much like I did last week because there's one of those, one of these times when Matthew's compressing these stories, usually Matthew gives more detail, but in this case, Mark is going to give a little more detail, but a tax collector in those days was not a popular position to be in. Uh, uh, We love tax collectors today, right? (laughs) I don't think so. But I'm sorry if you're an IRS agent, but, you know, it's just the way it is. It's not that you probably don't even tell people what you do. I work for the government. But uh, in those days, tax collectors were corrupt. They were Jews who had sold out to Rome, and their money, and they made a lot of money, was skimming off the top. And so they were hated. It was like saying, he walked by and saw a pimp, or he walked by and saw a prostitute, or he walked by and saw a bookie. I mean, you know, it was just like, a tax collector? And Jesus called him uh, out of his sin. And I want to read, um, I want to read from, I said Mark, didn't I? I'm going to read from Luke. Just read Luke's account. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to the the fuller account. After that, he went and noticed a tax collector named Levi, Matthew, he has two names, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, "'Follow me.' And he left everything and rose up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at table with them, and the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples." Why do you eat and drink with tax-gatherers and sinners?' And Jesus answered, "'It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call righteous men, but sinners to repentance.'" This passage is sometimes used, misused, I would say, by Christians To say that, hey, we can, we can sin, we can hang out with the sinners. We can live the same lifestyle. Jesus was criticized for that. And, you know, we should just hang out with sinners. Jesus wasn't hanging out with sinners. He was calling sinners to himself. And when Matthew came to Christ, we're told he gave a big reception for his friends. This was an evangelistic dinner, if you will. He invited everybody over, and Jesus gladly came, he said, not for the healthy people, but for the sick people. And so this isn't saying that we ought to hang out with sinners and go where sinners go, etc. cetera. It's saying that when a sinner comes to Christ, he's going to have a heart for others. And Matthew had that heart. His conversion was real. And uh, Jesus got to articulate this clear statement. He's the physician of souls. And so we have a gospel today, let me tell you, that isn't for those who fancy themselves healthy, but for those who admit that I'm a sinner and I have a need, a great need for a Savior. Well, then the disciples of John, verse 14, came to him saying, "'Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast?' And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn, as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskin bursts, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Um, What we have here is this question of fasting. And it's interesting, and I'm I'm not going to comment too much about it, but uh fasting, he's asked about it by John's disciples. Notice it's the disciples of John the Baptist that came and they said, Hey, we fast, and uh the Pharisees fast. Why don't your disciples fast? Now, fasting in Scripture is associated with mourning. And uh, you know a mourning over sin and a mourning over the condition that we're in. And uh, Jesus points out that the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? You don't mourn, you don't mourn, you don't fast at a, at a, at a wedding. You might mourn and fast at a funeral, but not at a wedding. And the bridegroom is here. Jesus was there. And he said, my disciples aren't called to fast, they're called to rejoice, okay? And uh, so he points that out, and then he gives some other principles there that I would say it's good for us to learn from, and uh, he explains a general principle about Christianity, and it is that you can't force Christianity, a relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ, into kind of the old Judaism of the day. Uh, You just can't do it. And uh, particularly here, they were saying, hey, the Pharisees fast, and John's disciples fasted, and they were kind of making common cause even with the Pharisees. And Jesus said, no, no, uh, I'm here. There'll be time to fast later, but I'm here now, and we should rejoice. And I would say uh, there's you could apply that principle in many ways, but be careful of trying to take a relationship with Christ and wed it to religious forms around you. It doesn't work very well, and in fact, lots of times the new wine will break the old wine skin. And uh, you know, when you come to Christ, you're a new creature, and you don't try to just fit it in with other forms of quote religion. No, there's a reality to this that is very real. And Christ didn't come to patch up some religion. Uh, If you're religious and you're thinking you can kind of just add Jesus to your religion, think again. Now, in fact, the religious ones, the Pharisees, were some of his biggest opponents. And they needed to come and admit their sin and be born from within. Jesus told Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, he, that's the one he said, you know, you've got to be born again. You've been born wrong. And Nicodemus didn't get it at all. Uh, the Pharisees were the ones uh, causing problem. You know, and I'll just... Uh, I'm looking at. Let me look at the clock if I can here. I'll take the time. Uh, let me just read... Charles Spurgeon wrote on this passage, and I just want to... He said it eloquently, and I'll just, you know... Think back. He's writing 150 years ago, but the same principle applies. And I think it says, well, he says it well. Judaism, in its degenerate condition, was an old skin bottle which had seen its day. Our Lord would not pour the new wine of the kingdom of heaven into it. John's disciples were trying to emulate the Pharisees and make common cause with them. Jesus would have nothing to do with this project. There was to be no amalgamation Christianity was not to be an outgrowth of Judaism. There was to be a severance between Jesus and the scribes and their school of thought. He continues, Compromises are often proposed, and we have good people, like John's disciples, who would have us conform to do what they think good in things established, to make common cause with others. But we had better to act consistently, Spurgeon writes. The old cloth will always be tearing, and tearing all the worse because of our new pieces. Therefore, let us leave the old garment to those who prefer antiquity <laughs> truth. If you like your old religion and your old, that's fine, he says. But the mixing of wedding feasts and funeral fasts, the patching of old cloth with pieces unshrunk, the putting of new wine into old wineskins are all pictures of those mixtures and compromises which cannot in the nature of things serve any good and lasting purpose. If we follow the rejoicing bridegroom, let us not try to keep it Keep in with the fasting Pharisees or the sacramentarian legalists of the day. I think that's well said. Now verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, behold, there came a synagogue official and bowed down before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. Now, this synagogue official was named Jairus. Mark, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. And Mark and Luke uh, tell us that this was Jairus, and his daughter is 12 years old, we're told in the other Gospels, and she died. And Jairus says, I know if you'd come and lay your hand on her, she could live again. And here we see Jesus' power over death. But there's an eruption in all of the accounts. Look at verse 20. Behold, a woman who'd been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For he was, she was saying to herself, If only I touch his garment, I shall get well. But Jesus turned and seeing her said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. That was like a little interruption in the story. And again, I'm going to go to Mark. And if you want to, you can turn there, Mark 5, and listen to uh, the more detailed account because is a very interesting and powerful little scene. He's on his way to Jairus' house where Jairus' daughter is dead. And uh, verse 25, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all but rather had grown worse. You know, there's lots of situations. And this woman was in one. Twelve years she had this medical condition. She went to every doctor in town. She went to the specialist. She tried everything. She'd spent everything she had. And she hadn't gotten better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. Dr. Luke, a physician, when he writes about this, he just simply says, no one could heal her. She was unhealable and uh, so she's in the crowd and after hearing about Jesus verse 27 she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak for she thought if I just touch his garments I shall get well and immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the multitude pressing in on you and you say who touched me? They were crowding around him. And Luke tells us that Peter took the lead in this and said, Lord, there's people touching you everywhere. And you're asking who touched you? And uh, he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, this is written for our instruction. This gal knew if she could just lay hold, if I could just touch even even his garment. She had a faith in Christ, and Christ's power healed her, and he knew it. And he said, who touched me? And he called her out to publicly acknowledge what Jesus had done for her. And she did, and he said, your faith has made you well go in peace. Um, I wonder, we're being interrupted here, and I will, I'll tell you the end of the story. He's going to get to the little girl's house, and he's going to raise her from the dead because he rose from the dead. Uh, we've, we've been stopped by the clock. We're out of time today. But I'll tell you, if you lay hold of him with the weakest of faith, he'll save you. You don't have to come to him with all kinds of... It's not your faith that saves you. It's Jesus who saves you. And I wonder, have you touched him, so to speak? And I don't mean touched physically. I'm talking about now. Have you cried out to him? Have you called out to him? And you might have tried everything else. You might have spent all your money. You might have given everything you've got to making yourself right with God a variety of ways, and there's no healing. Every healing in the Scripture is a picture of our need for healing spiritually. This woman couldn't be healed by the doctors. She'd tried. Doctors, good doctors, get to the end of the line and they'll admit we can't do anything. But Jesus can. And so if you lay hold of him, you can be saved. This woman was, and uh, we'll pick it up right here and see next time, that uh, so was the 12-year-old girl who had actually already died. And again, death is a picture of our state also.
1: You've been listening to Abide in the Word with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Please stay with us. Pastor Scott will return in just a moment with a preview of our next broadcast. Today's program was titled, Forgiveness in No One Else, a message from our study of the Gospel of Matthew. If you missed a portion of the message heard on the program today or you'd like to share it with a friend, head on over to abideintheword.us. A free copy of today's entire message is available there for you to stream or download at your convenience. Pastor Scott would love to invite you to join us for our live online Sunday worship service at Southwest Bible Church. That's each Sunday morning at 8:30 and 11 a.m. You can find us live on YouTube by searching for SW Bible Live or go to swbible.org and click on live stream. We also broadcast the service live on the radio on True Talk 800 a.m. It's best to check the 800 a.m. program guide for up-to-the-minute schedule adjustments. If you've ever wanted Pastor Scott's Sermon Library in the palm of your hand, we have a new app available called the Abide App. It's available in both the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. Along with the Sermon Library, you'll also find Scott's written publications, biblical seminars on a variety of subjects, daily devotional videos, this radio program, and the Abide Method, a monthly Bible reading and writing plan developed by Scott to give you the opportunity to read and write out Scripture. These resources all come free within the app. So if you're looking to deepen your relationship with Christ, please consider downloading the Abide app. Now, before we end our time today, let's go to Pastor Scott for a preview of our next broadcast. If Jesus' characteristic activities were teaching, evangelizing,
0: and healing, his characteristic mode or mood or tone or attitude... Seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion. It's a word that means pity, feeling compassion, okay? It moved him to action. He acted on it. We're not to just simply sentimentalize. We're to be like him. And if we sense the needs around us, we're to act to meet them. In the New Testament, I find this word, compassion. And you know what? 14 times. Every time it's
1: used, it's used of God. He is the compassionate one. Join us again next time as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Scott will bring a message titled, Going About Teaching, Proclaiming, and Healing. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you.